this is Kyle Blakely, and you're listening to COS 23, The Mayor's Race. The key issues in this year's mayoral election are pretty consistent. Public safety, infrastructure, homelessness, cost of living, economic vitality, and affordable housing are all mentioned frequently. Today, we're going to take a look at one of these issues, affordable housing and its related issue of attainable housing. I've lived here for 30 years, and affordable housing has been talked about almost that entire time. It seems like we've fallen farther behind during that time, too. So why haven't we solved it? What are the solutions we need to be looking at now, and what role does the mayor play in solving the issue? High housing costs, both in terms of renting and purchasing, can have a big impact on a community. If lower-income families can't find affordable housing, it can increase homelessness. If some residents have to choose between paying their rent and paying for food, it can spiral into a host of other issues. If younger residents can't afford housing here, they're more likely to move to another city or not even move here to begin with. It can make it harder for companies and organizations to recruit new employees, and it impacts whether companies may choose to relocate here. Affordable housing is typically defined as paying no more than 30% of a household's income. So obviously, that varies from person to person and family to family. Part of the issue is subsidized housing for lower-income residents, and the other part is building less expensive homes that allow first-time homebuyers and moderate-income families to find something they can afford. There are a lot of moving parts to this issue, so I thought it would be good to get a couple of folks who know something about it to join me today. Chris Lewis is the Executive Director of Habitat for Humanity here in Colorado Springs, and I'm also joined by former City Council person Richard Scorman, who can help talk about this from the city's perspective. Chris and Richard, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yes, happy to be here. Absolutely. As I've worked on this podcast and talked to the candidates and talked to people in the community, there's three issues or four issues that seem to pop up a lot. There's public safety and uh, issues around growth and affordable housing and affordability in general comes up a lot. Well, public safety, I feel like I've heard a lot of specific solutions around, and I think I kind of understand the key issues around smart growth and all of that. The reason why I wanted to talk about affordable housing today is, for me, this is an issue that I probably understand less than a lot of other issues in the community. And I've lived here for 30 years, and I've heard people talk about uh, affordable housing almost that whole time. I've heard candidates talk about how we've slipped a little bit over the last few years. And so part of this is selfish. I just want to learn more about this issue. And so I thought this would be great to have, Chris, your perspective from uh, the nonprofit world and Richard having been on city council, understanding this from the city side to really get your perspectives on this. So again, I really appreciate you being here. I'll start with you, Chris, around kind of a broader look at this. I guess part of it is how do you define affordable housing? Because I hear different definitions. And then what do you see as kind of the the issues in the community right now around it? So affordable housing for any level, whether it's from the unhoused all the way to those who own their own homes, affordable housing are for those who are not paying more than 30% of their income towards housing. That includes their mortgage or their rent, their insurance, their property taxes, and for those who have an HOA or a metro district, as well as utilities. So if you are paying more than 30% of your income, then you have less income to be proactive on your health, to be buying healthier groceries, to deal with car repairs, that sort of thing. So it comes 
down to a nutshell on affordable housing at all levels that if you care about health, mental and physical, if you care about safety, such as first responders, if you care about education, social justice, that all comes down to affordable housing. All of that ties up into a bow, into people having a safe, decent place to live. Okay. Richard, again, your time on council, obviously you've been involved in the community for a long, long time, but specifically the time you've been on council, what's your kind of take on this issue as you look at the community as a whole? If you think about uh, the region, which I think we have to, so you know there's 260,000 households, and about 82,000 of them, and, and according to this report by the City of Colorado Springs called Home COS, which by the way is streamable and and copyable. It's very very interesting, very very thorough and well done. Our uh, housing, you know, compromised, uh, but basically it's 30% or more. Uh, of that, 15% of the households are severely compromised, where they're spending maybe uh, 50% of their income on rent and utilities and all the things you talked about. So it's a, it's a big problem. And it's not only a problem here. It's a problem everywhere, except in places that uh, have pretty bad economies and and people uh, are struggling. Now, we happen to be lucky to have a good economy, and we are growing at a huge rate, about 2% a year. Uh, about half of that is birth rate over death rate, by the way. Oh, so it's people, we tend to attract people here, uh, military people at childbearing age. <laughs> and uh, But we are an attractive place to live, and people want to come here. Now they can work remotely. But, it, but it's a complicated problem, and that's what you were saying. It's not an easy one to have one solution. And I, and I know we'll talk more about uh, what's possible out there. We'll yeah. just see, how, see if it's uh, something that the community or the, the, you know, the city council and El Paso County commissioners and other people in the community would allow to happen. Interesting. Again, for me, like I said, as I've heard people talk about this issue for the last 25, 30 years, I don't always understand what are the specific things that can be done or should be done to help solve this issue. Chris, what are some of those things that you think we could be doing or should be doing to help deal with this? Nationally, as well as here, we stopped building enough units clear back to 2008 when we had the financial crisis. Builders couldn't keep the land. They couldn't keep up with the staff. So you lost quite a few technical people who had the trade skills that you needed to to build the homes over the years. And so builders are, um, they need to make money. Anywhere from 8 to 13% is an average range for them. So when your land keeps going up because there's a land shortage and they're having to buy land anywhere it used to be, you could get a complete, a fully developed lot for twenty-eight thousand. Now it's running anywhere from seventy to over a hundred thousand a lot. That's just for the land and getting it ready to build on. And then you have the crazy increases we've had because of the COVID shortage on supplies and the number of of your trades they're retiring left and right and getting the trade schools and the high schools to see that we need to start educating people who want to be in the trades. You don't have to go to college. All of that has contributed to it. 
the emphasis has been on education. You must have a college degree to make money. And the trades got pulled back on that. So you lost a lot of the skills and, and the institutional knowledge with that. Then when you come to the builders, they've got incredible costs, just like Habitat does. We're a land developer and we're a builder. Pre-COVID, our costs went from 150000 to over 300000 So there's no one silver bullet. The city has come in. They actually help fund a number of Habitat uh, homes um, through, through HUD funding. Mm-hmm. So they're a great partner for Habitat, as well as they are for other affordable entities. Gratio Partners in Housing, Rocky Mountain Community Land Trust, Solid Rock. They've provided funding to get different housing created. But they can't all be on the city. However, when you look at the National Coalition of Low-Income Housing, which it's a national survey, nine out of ten people who responded to that said that they want city government or local government to help, not, not solve, but to help come up with the solutions for that. So there's not a silver bullet. I think it comes down to an awareness of what is affordable housing because so many people have a stigma about that. Oh, it's those people. It's that type of housing when affordable housing actually impacts all of us. So education is a piece. That means advocacy. It also means increasing funding for those of us who are nonprofit on how do we continue to build without subsidizing at the level we were. We cannot, we are not, Habitat is not sustainable. If we're subsidizing 100000 out of every home, that's costing us 300000 Yeah. So looking for partners, whether it's foundations, fundraising, city. I will say most of the costs that hit your for-profit as well as us on cost of building are regulations. We need to look at what regulations have already been created and what's come down the pipeline that is driving our costs up, literally through the roof. So you've got that piece. Um, Mortgages and and the ability to fund, whether it's rental, which we do not do, or um, we actually are the mortgage originator and the servicer, So we have to figure out how do we hold a 30-year mortgage that your traditional, your for-profit entities can sell to banks and they get that cash right away. We don't. So we're looking at how do we leverage some of those loans. There's there's so many moving pieces. It's like a big two, two big cogs, wheels that are turning. And if you get one tooth that's slightly out of alignment then that messes up the whole system. So um, the city is trying. I would say that uh, Mayor Souther's goal has been obtained over, you know, 2,000 units per year. We could actually do more and and have been. I think it was obtainable. And and so the bar might have been set a little low to make sure we could do it. I think we can do more going forward. For us, um, people constantly complain about the land developers. Now, there are some that make more money than others or they are hanging on to land. They're in business to make money and they were wise buyers a long time ago. They're looking at at, at water costs and staffing. So there's all these other pieces that are moving together. One of the things that that is difficult for Habitat is it's amazing that we are bringing in so many high-paying jobs. And that's great that the Chamber of Commerce is is out there doing what they're supposed to do. The thing is, when you're bringing in the higher paying jobs, it's driving up the cost because they can outbid those who who may be able to come up with more cash to put a higher down payment on. Yeah, yeah interest rates have been a problem, but it's it's that ability to access cash. So you have all of that happening. Um, and 
we, we want people with, with stellar jobs. But what Habitat is seeing, for a strong community, you have to have a strong foundation. That includes, yes, your first responders, your safety, your teachers, your school bus drivers, your entry-level medical. If you want to go in for blood tests, a phlebotomist who's making 18 to $25 an hour, they can't buy a home. They can't pay rent without roommates. Daycare. Daycare's at a shortage has been. So all of these things, no silver bullet. Richard, Chris was talking about the, the goal of 2,000 units a year. You were on council when, when that was happening. What were some of the things that you guys were working on at the city or that you kind of saw as, as critical around this? Well, certainly we became a good conduit for federal monies. Uh, and then during COVID, there was ARPA monies that really could go to this purpose. And so, you know, as a city council and as a mayor, you know, that became a priority. But as you say, the bar was set low and there's all these other obstacles. So, you know, we would spend hours and hours with neighborhood groups coming in and opposing a duplex in their single-family neighborhood. The zoning is such that most everybody lives in a single-family neighborhood. So nobody wants to see the change in their, in their neighborhood, or they don't want those people living there, like you expressed. Um, you know, a lot of resistance to uh, an attainable housing apartment complex uh, right by the Safeway down on Broadmoor Bluffs. Because yeah. uh, the neighbors didn't want those, you know, the, that happening there. They were worried about, uh, you know, people that uh, maybe they didn't have to worry about because it was really attainable housing is what they call it, where yeah. it was for the Safeway workers to live and the police and firefighters and, and teachers, you know. And so it, it's, it's a, as she said, it's a really complicated one. City council has a role and so do the county commissioners. And in some ways... What city council does is is uh, not constructive, and I can go into some of those details. So we put yeah. more onto a new home uh, or a new apartment than the county does because, uh, you know, they call them exactions, but we want the new growth to pay for itself. Yeah. And we want them to have stormwater, and we want them to have ADA requirements. Uh, requirements and to make sure that they have uh, the ability to deal with their sewage and, you know, all the different parts, park, land dedication monies, and and uh, now they have a police and fire impact fee. So existing residents don't have to pay for the, the new development. However, yeah. it's twenty five dollars to $30,000 more to build in the city than the county. So now we have all this urban-level development in the county. You know, they talk about maybe 50,000 people in the Falcon area over the next 10 years without water maybe, without, you know, parks, without public safety. And so and do you want people driving those long distances to to get to work? And so it's a complicated one. And I can go into more specific details later if you'd like. Yeah, I – Again, I heard somewhere one time, and I'm sure I'm. You guys may know the correct answer to this, but like for every thousand dollars that gets added to the price of a home, there's hundreds of people in the community who can no longer qualify for that home. Just, I mean, just slight increments like that can seriously reduce the number of people who can afford that home. 
it does seem like a balance in terms of regulations and the burden that that puts, because you're right. You can't expect the developers to just eat that all the time. I mean, they are in business to make money. I think that's why you see how much money they've put into this mayoral race is because they there's at least in my view, there's very few industries that are regulated at the local level quite like they are. And so they that's that's why they get involved in local politics and, and fund different candidates depending on their support for their issues and everything. But it does seem like a balance there somewhere. What are some of the other solutions that you think might be important with this issue, whether it's around, again, zoning, types of housing, all of those kinds of things, or additional looking for additional federal money. I don't know, but what are some other ideas that might you think might be critical? Well, I have my long list, but yeah, I, I don't go. mean I don't mean to dominate. So if no, you'd like, but uh, we can go back and forth. Yeah, yeah we, we, can go, I, we can go back and forth. Start your but, list. Uh, yeah, so, that's why, Richard. I knew you'd have a list. That's why I asked. Yeah, you to come I'm just uh, one of these nerds. And, and, uh, <laughs> I tell people I have my master's degree in city council and land use, but. So, so other other cities have been more more creative, and uh, maybe a little bit more uh, government overreach for some people that are listening to this, but it's really helped. And so, what what you have to think about with this is every possibility. It's, it's so complex, and there's so many different people affected. What we didn't talk about are the number of seniors who live Correct. here. Yeah. On, on fixed incomes. And, and, and growing. Uh, and growing. And because baby boomers are getting older and they all thought they had their nest egg and they didn't realize they were going to, you know, they were spending 800 a month for rent and utilities. Now it's 2000 a month. And, yeah. And so you, you have those people who are very vulnerable. Uh, and then you have, you know, just the, as we we're talking about, just the general population. But so, so what other cities have done, and I don't know if we, are, we have the appetite to try or not, but they've done um, – they've really looked at their zoning and building codes, but especially their zoning, and they uh, allow for more density mm-hmm. and more housing choices. I support that. And they're very creative about it. So it may be that it's easy for somebody to fix up their basement. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not like building a du- whole duplex or an accessory dwelling on top of the garage and all that, but – Cost per, you know, per uh, square foot is so much cheaper to go in and remodel the basement. Yeah. All these obstacles, you know, fire department, you can go through the whole list, you know, the firewalls and the, you know, the, what's required and, and uh, you know, parking is another big one. So do we need to have as much parking as we do? Uh, maybe not. Maybe, especially if they're apartments and they're in an area like a downtown or east of downtown where people ride their bikes or have public transportation. Maybe those are areas that don't need to have those two parking spaces for every two you know, adults. And, and maybe, or maybe there's a way to be creative about that. But, but if you as a, as a zoning department and a council and a mayor think about this as a, what can we do to really incent this mm-hmm. because, you know, we're never going to have enough federal money to build ourselves. Yeah. And we don't want to build projects like in New York City and other places. Anyhow, it's not, it's not what we do. Yeah. But if the marketplace can support it and then the incentives. So, you know, they've waived uh, uh, use tax for this purpose. 
That's they, right. I'd heard about that. Yeah, and and, and uh, they they may waive uh, other fees. You know, maybe some of the utility fees aren't as necessary there because it's not going to make a big difference in everybody's rates to have some of these units built. There's inclusionary zoning. So when you allow for a, uh, an apartment complex to be built, there's a certain height limit. Maybe you extend that height a little bit. It's not going to make a huge difference. But, that, but if, they, uh, if they're willing to do it and devote 20% of their uh, units to be affordable or attainable, maybe that's a real benefit to the developer. And, uh, and you, can, you can just go through the list of all the things. Now, you, you, know, you were saying there's a lot of restrictions, and you, you, know, you were complaining about it too. And, and there's a balance in it. And there's a balance to, you know, allowing historic north end neighborhoods or, you know, or, you know places where people have invested a lot to, you know, want to open up every vacant, you know, inch yeah. of land for multi-story apartments. But if, if you can get to being more creative, and, and I can go through, I have a whole other list of, of solutions that other communities have done, but I want to give... Uh, you a chance. Well, let's talk about preserving the affordable housing we already have, such as Mill Street. You know, Conejos is oh, already yeah. gone. It was, it was, um, that neighborhood was, was torn down and now we have a park there, but we have Mill Street. It's the oldest neighborhood in Colorado Springs. It's affordable in that they're older homes. It's, um, the rent hasn't gone totally ridiculous but there's a little 600 square foot house there that was sold as an airbnb i think it was over 300,000 last year 600 square feet 500 so, bucks a square yep. foot and wow. it's way more uh, it's it's controlled by investors in the area it's high rent it, it's high rental occupation it's not as much homeowner occupied and habitat has 19 homes that we built down there so we've been looking at and working with the coalition on how do we preserve the affordable housing and turn it in either to affordable home ownership in there if there's vacant lots or there might be some homes that could potentially be torn down because it's just not economically feasible to, to rehab them enough to keep people in there. Yeah. But it's going to be impacted by the Drake power plant that comes in. Every neighborhood that's attached to a big uh, redevelopment gets impacted, whether yeah. for, for the good or the bad. So we need to look at preserving existing houses. That includes the senior population. A lot of people are like, well, these seniors, they need to move out of their houses and downsize. Okay, where are they going to downsize to that is affordable for them? Ranches are almost impossible to find, and especially right now that the building has slowed. They're going to exchange the house that they've lived in for 20, 30 years for 400000 to downsize into maybe, if they can find it, a four hundred dollars to $550,000 house. That's not feasible for somebody who's retired. Yeah. We also need to look at how do we upgrade those homes to where you people can age in place. And Habitat does that with a repair program in, sponsor, in cooperation with Silver Key. So to keep seniors in a place, since there is no place for them to go to and they can't necessarily get a reverse mortgage, they can't afford to move into assisted living, how do you keep them in their homes for safety, for health, for accessibility? So looking at those type of things. I will say that the city has really tried to... Um, look at different models, including increasing density farther out, um, allowing for accessory or auxiliary dwelling units, probably not to the level we need. 
the city's looking at things. Um, it's to me, it's kind of an inchworm, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not at the speed it needs to be. <laughs> I'm not saying tear down Old North. I'm, that's not where I'm going. But there are a number of things we need to look at. Another thing is, yes, we need to protect the water and the legal settlement we had with with Pueblo. Now we have to have detention ponds at a level that is extremely large. So if we get a five-acre parcel, we're having to put in a detention pond now that instead of took up maybe four house lots, can take up eight to ten or more, depending on how many units from around that neighborhood are going to flow into that. So those are things to consider as well. Yeah, because that just drives up the cost of the remaining houses and, again, just perpetuates the problem a lot. It does. And, and, and uh, what the solution of the, to that is is what they call low-impact development, where you don't need the detention ponds because you're able to absorb the water into the soil. And so it's, that's where building, you know, the, the building, regional building department and the city and the county can really be proactive in making sure new houses are built the right way or reconstructing uh, old houses, but, but you can go back and re-landscape mm-hmm. to allow for uh, you know, deciduous trees on the south side of the house to provide shade because a lot of what we're building you know, electric power for right now is air conditioning because our heat envelope is increasing. Yeah. And so uh, you know, we only have a 19% urban canopy. But we, we, went, we, we did a great job with our, we called it the drainage criteria manual, and it was an anticipation of the EPA lawsuit, and but it's, that's been going on for 20 years. All those drainage and you know flood issues, and that's how I got involved in council. In, you know, 1999, I was traipsing through basements with uh, you know this much sewage everywhere because we had a big uh, we had a rainstorm that uh, completely flooded out the system. But but having said that, uh, there that's where we could could be more prescriptive. It's, a little, it's more expensive. Initially. But, but initially, but boy, that, that vacant land is, is critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then can we be more creative with vacant land? Could you allow some of these nonprofits, these churches, to build a small little complex on their land? You know, that some of these churches have, you know, two, three acres. Yeah. You know, can you, can you look at uh, areas that were commercial or uh, even uh, office buildings? And repurpose them. Absolutely. There's so many vacant office buildings now because people are working remotely. You know, I, I can attest to that because our, our business lunch <laughs> business is way down at Poor Richards. But, oh, wow. but, but having said that, uh, there's this building say, sitting vacant. Yeah. There, there are young people that don't mind living in a small place. In fact, there's a term out there called micro-apartments where people live and, you know, they're almost yeah. like a, a tiny home but yeah. an apartment. And uh, they don't necessarily want to have a big house with a big yard to take care of. And, you know, they're willing to, some, you know, and it would be nice if they could own it as opposed to rent. So they have that long-term security. But, but, it, but if you could figure out how to repurpose a lot of what we have and be creative with the existing homes that uh, maybe the seniors need to take in a renter. Yeah. Somebody, maybe it's a, a nephew or, or a, you know, a cousin. It's not like they have to take in strangers. Yeah. But right now, it makes it very, it's very difficult to do um, accessory dwellings or, you know, something that the council didn't go for, mm-hmm. which I, I actually voted 
uh, on the, I think on the right side and said that we should. At least you looked at it. Yeah, Thank at, least, you. at least we looked at it. Uh, short-term rentals. Sometimes, you know, you go on blocks on the west side, you know, these great affordable homes, and they're 60%, 75% short-term rentals, and they're out-of-town investors. Mm-hmm. And that's taking up valuable inventory. So we tried to restrict it. Yeah. But then they took us to court and we lost because uh, we said it had to be owner-occupied. We thought at least that would give it some stability and, and uh, people would would maybe not uh, be buying up everything. They would just be living in their own home and renting it out. Didn't uh, uh, courts ruled against us. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you, you can go down the list, but, but you have to think about every every possibility. So it's great. Downtown's going to have 2,000 new residential units by this time next year. And, uh, and I think a total of 3,000 over the last couple of years. It's mm-hmm. predicted to have five. T- 10 to 20 percent are affordable. They're market rate. So is that really what we want? Yeah, we need them. But do we really want to figure out how to incent more yeah. r- reasonably? Yeah, well, it's just like bringing art space into downtown. I think that 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 is affordable housing. I believe it's capped at sixty percent of the income. Yeah, and you're getting people with lower income who have phenomenal skills that will lift up the na- the downtown neighborhood in a different way. Yeah, and it still creates some mixed income. In my opinion, not enough. But yay, go to, go the downtown group that brought that in. Um, yeah, there, there are yeah. so many. So, so many solutions. Uh, tiny homes. Uh, there are tiny homes people, a lot of people really do enjoy. Yeah. And it's a, there's a great model out there uh, in Austin called Community First, where they, they have it as permanent supportive housing for the homeless. Very successful. They have now they're up to 500 units. These people have a place to, stable to be. It's less calls to service there than the suburban neighborhood next door because it's a place that has those wraparound services. And so you, you have the, the different, but nobody wants it in their neighborhood. I just In, in, in fact, you, I don't think you can have a tiny home unless it's on wheels, according to our zoning codes. Yeah. And um, so it's just not, you know, the, we need to look at every different moving part to this. It's a, it's a, with a, with a thousand, uh, you know, uh, light uh, pieces of light, whatever that expression is. Yeah, yeah. Well, about a year ago, I worked with briefly uh, worked with a gentleman here in the county who wanted to do a tiny home development up Butte Pass and county property. And I can't remember now what the total number of units would have been. Um, they they backed it off considerably from what would would have been allowed, um, but. You know, they, they started with a public meeting and just got killed by the neighbors uh, yeah. complaining about it. And then as they moved forward and tried to work with the county to to get the project done, the opposition was so overwhelming from the surrounding neighborhood that the county just said, no, we're not. We can't go forward with this. And so, again, what would have been an opportunity for some affordable ownership got defeated just well, very quickly. Affordable in some ways. Tiny homes are the most intense, most expensive dollar per square foot home. Yeah. So you I'm still have tap in, fees. and In terms of the total cost. Yeah. And if it's subsidized, okay, somebody has to subsidize it. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying I'm against them, but people need to be aware that they, they can become extremely expensive because you still have to put in 
all the utilities. Yeah. And so depending on the land cost and the infrastructure, by the time they get their tiny home set up and if they own it, it might actually be cost prohibitive. Yeah. But, but, but that's where you want the utilities to understand and maybe waive some of those fees yeah. or, or reduce them or if the home is efficient – uh, loan them money to pay for what what you're talking about, but have them uh, pay back out of the savings. So you know, in yeah. old, that's a lot of these older homes. Are, that's a really good solution. That you know, there are people out there, the Energy Resource Center, that are out there helping low income people. But you know, when you talk about thing, you know, homes being cost prohibitive. A lot of it's utilities, too. Mm-hmm. And that's really the factor. Unfortunately, utilities have gone up, especially natural gas. So should the utilities get into the, the loaning business to help people retrofit to make their houses efficient mm-hmm. and get paid back out of the savings? So they could, you know, for five years get paid to what they would normally have made before, but then they'll be able – and then they reduce demand – so they don't have to build more power plants or bring in more water because mm-hmm. things are efficient. So, so you you, you got to think about you know all the different moving parts. So yeah. we we now build houses uh, that have large attics that take a lot to air condition. They're talking about seventy five percent saturation of air conditioners in uh, the city of Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs mm-hmm. Utilities Territory, because we're two and a half degrees hotter than other front-range cities because we only have a 19% urban canopy and weather is getting hotter. That's yeah. just the na- nature of it. And we've acquired so many impervious surfaces, parking lots and rooftops. You know, it, other cities, Houston now has all their pavement has to be light and all their rooftops have to be light because uh, of their heat envelope and they've been able to reduce it by 35%. It's not a huge cost burden. Um, yeah. It's some, but a little bit. But down the road, the savings are what you can use possibly. No, and I agree with you. Tiny homes can, can be very expensive, and they. But, but what happens is often they um, they can be subsidized at least for the you know permanent support of housing for the homeless. But but that's not you know the magic solution either. Right. Right. Well, even habitat houses we've built with two by six walls way before it was required. During the winter, our homeowners are paying thirty, maybe forty dollars per month in all electricity. Yeah. So it's the needs to be tighter. Home built. Not that I want people to, you know, I'm going to hear all kinds of people saying, "Ah, you're, you're getting government regulation," and then you just <laughs> complained about it. However, if it brings down the costs for the occupants as well as mm-hmm. reduces the environmental impact, I'm for it. Yeah, good. So, Chris. Habitat hosted a forum for the mayoral candidates, and I went that night. Where 12 candidates were split up into two groups, and I was able to watch the first group but had to leave. And so I didn't get a chance to watch the second group. Part of it for me was I didn't necessarily hear a bunch of great solutions being talked about, but uh, you were there that night. What was your did – you, did you come away from the forum hopeful? <laughs> did you come away uh, – Concerned? I don't know. I I just kind of wanted to get your take on how that evening went, what you heard, and kind of what you what you think. Well, whoever wins, Habitat will be working with. So um, I will say there are three candidates, four maybe, who who have a better understanding of affordable housing, 
But in a minute to a minute and a half soundbite, I did not hear specific solutions from most of them. Many of the candidates um, who have not served in public service before, they they don't really understand affordable housing and the solutions. Um, one of the younger candidates suggested bringing in mobile homes. Manufactured homes, panelized homes can definitely be one of those solutions, and we need to look at that. You get people housed much faster. They are built very, very well anymore. It's finding the land and getting the utilities to them. So I appreciated um, uh, our, our youngest candidates' uh, input on that. Um, <laughs> I, I would what I found interesting is even those who have served at the city level were bringing up solutions to have a, a, an affordable housing guru. We already have that through the community development division that's through the city. Um, and especially uh, there, there's one I won't name names, but there's one employee there in particular who is very familiar with a number of ha- affordable housing possibilities across the country that we could bring here. They work with a number of the nonprofits who provide the affordable housing here. So I just want to point out that we have people in place and we need to acknowledge them, celebrate them, and know that they have a very tough job because they have limited funds. So I was a little surprised when somebody said, well, we only have three people in that office. You have 13. So so some things I I was a bit taken aback. Um, and then you had the nonprofits and the housing authority, and yes. you, yeah, there's a lot of experts out there in this issue. You're absolutely right. Yeah, we all need to recreate the wheel. We don't. So, question uh, related to this, and I'm just curious because it's become one of the a little bit of one of the lightning rod issues in this campaign, and that's the city's recent water rule that they adopted to have 128% of the water necessary for residents and businesses and any development that might come in. And what that does to possible expansion of the city through annexation. Does an ordinance like that make affordable housing more difficult? Does it make it easier? Or is it really not an issue when it comes to talking about affordable housing? Again, my take on it is, that it might restrict some land. And again, I know there's always issues with urban sprawl being, you know, there's things that come along with it, but a lot of times building farther out, the land is cheaper. Home prices might be a little bit lower, but again, there's a whole host of other things that come along with that. I don't know. It just seems to me like that issue might make affordable housing a little more difficult, but it may not have anything to do with it. What's your take on that? Well, that's another really complicated one. But uh, I'm glad that the utility board is looking at this more holistically right now. I think they put that in place as a stopgap. Okay. Because this new, this horseshoe development, you know, was pretty far away. There are other issues, you know, like police and fire protection. The city of Fountain wasn't willing to step up. And so how do you, you know, make a a pretty big new development without – you know, a way to keep it safe, you know, to yeah. have, you know, is it 20 minutes to get to a 911 emergency call? You know, is that really what, uh, what is uh, going to make, make that uh, a place that people want to live or not? But, but having said that, I think they were going to have some attainable units there. And, uh, and I'm not going to get into the, yeah. the, the pro, pros yeah. and cons, no. but, but the water issue is a very compli- complicated one. And, and it really does need to be looked at uh, 
you know, I, I would say every five years, maybe every two and a half years, given what's going on with the Colorado River, yeah, and that we get 65% of our water from the Colorado River, and that's very over-appropriated. And yeah. So, you know, all that is, uh, I think, important. But, but you're right, land's cheaper out there, and that could be where affordable housing could be built. And the city has a lot of exactions. You know, we, we require that, you know, you do more. Annexation's more. expensive. Annex, yeah. Annexation's expensive. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I think we just have to be creative about it. However, do you want to have uh, places out east that are built that aren't in the city yeah. and they're not building parks and they're not taking care of their sewage and they don't, they're going to run out of water. You know, they're putting a straw into the Denver Aquifer and this 300-year water rule. I don't think it's really being monitored. Yeah. 25 years from now, and there's 50,000 people in Falcon, and they run out of water, what's going to happen? And the city may not want to annex them because they didn't build the uh, ADA requirements. They're going to get sued if they do. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, th- that's the part that's complicated. How we how we come to solutions regionally is is critical. Amen. I'm hoping that the that the elected leaders, people that get elected this election, and the people that are already there, think about us as a team, as opposed to the county versus the city, and yeah. that we we're all one here. Good. And Good. that's I think that's critical. Even at the mayoral forum, I kept saying it's a bipartisan issue that needs nonpartisan solutions, right. and that includes across government divisions. Exactly. Good. What are you hopeful about with this new election and or even not even necessarily related to the election, but what are you hopeful about here for the future? Okay. So affordable housing impacts everyone, whether people understand that or not. And I think the mayoral election, at least affordable housing's come up as a topic. It's been in crisis for more since 2008 across the country. And it's been in crisis here. We just weren't as aware of it publicly. So I would say the mayoral, all the candidates have brought it up in one way or another, whether or not they articulate the reasons or the possible solutions well, or in my opinion, correctly, but at least that's gotten out to the forefront. My hope for this community, because Habitat is about building community, and not we're not just homes. We build hope. We build communities. It's how do we pull people together on this? Well, there's so many regulations, and water is key, and understanding that we all deserve a decent place to live in a variety of different ways, and we need to understand there is no silver bullet, and no one is looking to government to, to be the only solution. Yeah. And I want the candidates to understand that. They're going to, going to have way more on their plate than just affordable housing. But if we don't address affordable housing, you will not have public safety. You will not have teachers. You will not have all the, the workforce people who provide the services a strong community needs. And so I am hopeful that people are far more aware of the need and accepting of their neighbors who may be living in unsubs, you know, they're, they're either in subsidized housing, not good housing. It's not necessarily by choice. That's just where they landed that they could afford. So let's look at one another with dignity and listen to people's comments respectfully, take it in and um, 
try to come up with a number of solutions that can come together that address a very big problem. We're not going to have the solution, but we can do way better than we're doing. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. As you heard, affordable housing is a pretty important issue in Colorado Springs right now. How does that tie back to this mayor's race that we're looking at here on the podcast? One of the things you can do is go back and listen to the individual episodes with the candidates. A lot of them talk about their solutions for affordable housing, how they view the issue. You can go to their websites. I'm sure on the issue sections of their websites, a lot of them will have thoughts and ideas around this topic. Again, it's important to do a little bit of research to understand if this issue is one of your main issues, to do the research to see which candidate lines up with your viewpoint the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of COS 23, the Mayor's Race podcast. This program is brought to you by Avant Strategies. Special thank you to producer Ted Robertson for help putting this program together. If you're interested in partnering with COS 23, the Mayor's Race podcast, you can reach out to me at kyle at avantstrategiesllc.com.